congregation, we come in the preaching to Lord's Day 30. So in connection with that, I'd like to read together from a couple of passages in the New Testament. First, we turn to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, and then to Hebrews, chapter 10. But first, 1 Corinthians 11, where we read together the verses 17 through 34. It's one of the main discourses in the Apostle Paul's body of writing on the Lord's Supper. It's a well-known passage, but we'll read it together. Chapter 11, starting at verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together... It is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. That's 1 Corinthians 11. We turn ahead to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. 
where we'll read the first 18 verses. And afterwards, we'll sing in response Psalm 18. Once again, we sung it this morning, but then also this afternoon. Psalm 18, this time stanza 15. Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This afternoon I may proclaim to you the word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 30 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which you find beginning on page 545 of your book of praise. Lord's Day 30 concludes the somewhat lengthy section of the Catechism dealing with the second of the two sacraments, the Lord's Supper. Here we confess together, what difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass? 
The Lord's Supper testifies to us, first, that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. And second, that through the Holy Spirit we are grafted into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And this is where he wants to be worshipped. But the Mass teaches first that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ unless he is still offered for them daily by the priests. And second, that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine. And there is to be worshipped. Therefore, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. Who are to come to the table of the Lord? Those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins and yet trust that these are forgiven them and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. But hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Are those also to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who by their confession and life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No. For then the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, according to the command of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. After we've heard from God's word, we'll sing in response Psalm 103, stances 1, 3, 4, and 7. <laughs> Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes you invite people over for dinner in order to get to know them. You invite in order to establish a relationship with, say, new members of the church, a relationship that ideally develops over time. That's the normal progression of events. You want to come from a point of not knowing to knowing. And as a Christian, you want to move from a general compassion for fellow believers to a comprehension, an understanding of them. But that's not how it goes in the relationship of believers to their Savior. Sure, we are on the receiving end of an invitation to come to the Lord's Supper. But that's not for Christ to establish a relationship with us. He's already done that at our baptism. 
No, he wants to strengthen the relationship he already has with us. That's a relationship in which a whole lot has already transpired, happened, before we ever started attending. In this case, it's not feasting leads to knowing. It's precisely the other way around. Knowing leads to feasting. Recognizing leads to rejoicing. Understanding who your understanding your Savior, who He is for you, what He's done for you, what He expects from you. That understanding leads to unobstructed access to His table. Why? Because when it comes to our Savior, properly understanding, knowing, and recognizing Him involves properly loving, obeying, and fearing Him. Pure and proper knowledge leads to pure and pleasing worship. This is what the Reformed churches have always upheld particularly in how we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're always, we're always faced with improper and idolatrous perspectives, both outside and inside the one holy Catholic Church. The Lord's Supper is not a place for us to worship bread and wine, and the Lord's Supper is not for every Tom, Dick, and Harry in the Church of Christ. Lord's Day 30 wants to give us the proper outlook on the character and on the sacrifice of our Savior. So we do well to listen to its instruction as it echoes the truth of God's word on who is really our host at the Lord's table. I bring you God's word in the following way. The Lord's Supper is for those who properly recognize their Savior particularly his glory in the celebration, his focus in the invitation, and then also his holiness in the restriction. So first, the Lord's Supper is for those who understand, who properly discern and recognize their Savior in his glory in the celebration. Question of the Catechism was a later addition. It was inserted in an attempt to refute the Roman Catholic Church in its administration of the Mass. The Council of Trent, which convened in a number of sessions between the years 1545 and 1563, that council formulated the doctrine of the Mass in September 1562, so towards the end. The formulation, Christ is bodily present in the bread and wine, and whoever taught otherwise, let him be cursed. It's quite likely that this formulation didn't reach Heidelberg until after the publication of the first edition of the Catechism in January uh, January 1563. But that stated curse was without a doubt directed at the Reformed Church. 
So it happened that the authors of the Catechism added question and answer 80 when the Catechism's second edition was published. The result was that now we have a question and answer that have brought about much debate and controversy. Many Christians today regret this. The Roman Catholic Church has seen improvements and changes, has it not? Masses no longer done in Latin. The bread is now handed to the communicants. It's no longer placed on their tongue by the priest. And does the Roman Church today really still hold to the doctrine of transubstantiation? Shouldn't we maybe just drop it, get rid of this question and answer? Well, no. There have certainly been changes, but the doctrine of the Mass, as articulated by the Council of Trent, has never been refuted. As a matter of fact, the Second Vatican Council of 1962 to 1965 reiterated the doctrine in its doctrine of the liturgy in this way Christ is always present. In his church, especially in her liturgical celebrations. He is present in the sacrifice of the Mass, not only in the person of his minister, but especially under the Eucharistic species bread and wine. So, for good reason, we retain in our catechism this question and answer. It's actually also then a tool for opening up the gospel to our Catholic neighbor. Why I say that is you'll notice that it doesn't attack and curse persons, individuals, as the Roman Church historically has done, but it attacks doctrine. The glory of the Lord, after all, is at stake here. Answer 80 speaks first about the reconciliation brought about by Christ. The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. It's a complete forgiveness of all our sins, even the most evil And God does this not because of anything we do. It's not because of our prayers or our repentance, although those are called for by the Lord. But it's only through the one sacrifice of Christ. This is the only ground of our salvation. The Lord's Supper professes this truth for God's people. It's a declaration that only the death of Christ is your life. Only Christ's death guarantees life. As surely as you see and touch and taste bread and wine. It's this heartfelt conviction that stands in contrast to what man has made of the Lord's Supper. We confess the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ unless he is still offered for them daily by the priests. Christ's work isn't sufficient. 
Even the dead don't have rest yet. The work of Christ has to be boosted by the priest. The church has to bring Christ again and again into the world through the Mass. At the celebration of the Mass, participants don't sit around a table like we do. The priest stands in front of the altar. He speaks the words of institution, and the elements are changed into the body and blood of Christ. And that's transubstantiation. But the high point of the Mass has not yet come. Afterward, the priest lifts up both elements, bread in one hand, wine in the other. And that lifting up, according to Rome, means that Christ is being sacrificed, offered up again, right in front of the church. Just like at Golgotha. This happens daily, as the Catechism says. The sacrifice on Calvary is continued daily. And this has to be done because Christ's sacrifice on the cross only took care of, only dealt with and canceled our original sin. Our daily, our actual sins were not atoned for. (laughs) They have to be reconciled daily by the priest also for the sake of the dead, yet in purgatory. They still need forgiveness of sins in order to pass into heavenly joy and glory. Beloved, this denies Christ's one sacrifice on the cross. Our reading from Hebrews 10 almost seems to Expect this, anticipate this abominable teaching. The author there contrasts priests who daily offer sacrifices, contrasts them with our chief high priest who offered for all time one sacrifice for sins and then sat down at the right hand of God. A high priest never sat down until his work was done. Christ's work of atonement is completed. And so the author goes on in verse 14 of Hebrews 10 to say, By one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. One sacrifice he's made perfect forever in the sight of God. Christ's sacrifice freed us from the wrath of God forever. And so he calls out at the very end, It is finished. You are no longer forsaken by God, but completely forgiven by God. That's what the Holy Supper testifies to us. The glory of our Redeemer, whose sacrifice we celebrate and cherish. Lord's Supper also emphasizes our communion with our Savior. Through the Holy Spirit, we confess, we are grafted into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father. We have a communion bond that is strengthened evermore when we sit at the table of our Savior. 
Now, I suspect you've probably heard a fair bit about this very thing in the last two Lord's Days or the last couple weeks, so we can be brief here. We may enjoy a spiritual communion that the Holy Spirit brings about. He grafts us into Christ. At his table, we grow and we bear fruit as branches, drawing nourishing sap from the vine. And that vine, Christ, is not on earth, but in heaven, at God's right hand. Which then further describes our celebration as a spiritual celebration and communion. We, as we always hear at the Lord's Supper, lift up our hearts on high, where Christ is in heaven. Yet the Mass teaches that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine. Christ, I would say, is ripped out of heaven. We can only share communion with him by bringing him down and looking for him, at him, in the externals of bread and wine. No, beloved. We see Christ in heaven by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. That makes us even richer than his family, his apostles. His ascension to heaven didn't rip him away from us. It brought him even closer. Now, wherever we are, we belong to him in body and soul by the work of his spirit. That's why we have to lift up our hearts, direct our faith to heaven. That's what the Lord's Supper does. It points us to Christ in his glory which is where Christ is to be worshipped and adored as we confess. We bring homage to Christ in heaven. The Mass teaches that Christ is to be worshipped at an altar. As soon as the priest has spoken those words of institution, the wafer and the wine change into the body and blood of Christ himself, and people kneel for worship Uh, This is why the Catechism can only conclude that the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Christ and an accursed idolatry. Because we have to shudder at the teaching of the Catholic Church still today. For the fact of the matter is, you and I, bring nothing to the table. We don't meet Christ halfway. We don't have to hire a priest to work for our reconciliation. We have a high priest who sits at the table with us because he's done all our work for us. We see a glimpse of his glory and glorious work at the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Scripture reveals to us all throughout that our Savior has come to reconcile us to God. We have to recognize that beautiful character and work of our Savior before we gather around his table. 
He wants to be worshipped not in the elements, the bread and wine, but where he actually is. On the throne of God in heaven on high. So we come this afternoon to consider another aspect of our Savior. We see that in his focus in the invitation that he issues. If you move along in our catechism, in question and answer 81, there's the question, who are to come to the table of the Lord? And the answer that the catechism gives is based on scripture, on the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11, which we read. The answer focuses on our hearts doesn't answer by saying that the Lord's Supper is for people who lead a blameless life. No, the probe goes even deeper than the external to the internal, the hidden heart. Christ's standard, Christ's focus in his invitation is on the disposition, the attitude of your heart. He wants us to examine our hearts. You can hear that in the language of the Catechism, those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins. There's a sorrow over sin, a sorrow that arises out of the heart. Yet there is trust that these are forgiven them. Further, there is also a desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. So the Lord searches out your heart, who you are in private. The Catechism points out to us that this is an exercise that we do within ourselves. You might see your brother or your sister stumble a lot, but surely you can't know the deepest yearnings of their heart. That's why Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 11, let a man examine himself, not your neighbor in the first place, but yourself. And oh, that doesn't mean that office bearers have no business withholding someone from attending the Lord's Supper. We know of church discipline coming out of Scripture, and we're going to see more of that in our third point, also next week in Lord's Day 31. But it means that God's people should not be busy with other examination, but self-examination. The Catechism boils down our self-examination to three essential parts, which I'm sure the Catechism students among us would recall are the three parts of the Catechism, our knowledge of our sin, of our deliverance, and of our thankfulness. Partakers at the Lord's Supper still have sins, and plenty of them. But these believers completely detest the fact that that is. Lord's Day 33 speaks of that as the first sign of conversion, a sincere sorrow that we have offended God by our sins. That sorrow produces the confession, the evil I don't want to do, I do that. Wretched man that I am. We also state that in the form for the Lord's Supper. Let everyone consider his sins and accursedness so that he, detesting himself, may humble himself before God. 
It's not enough to identify sin in our own life, have a knowledge of sin in our own heart. People like Cain, Saul, Judas fell into that category. But it has to bring about sorrow and grief before God. Notice, though, that the catechism doesn't stop here. It doesn't say we need to stop here either. There's another aspect to our self-examination. Trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of the suffering and death of Christ. It's a trust in the great mercy of God. Let everyone search his heart whether he also believes the sure promise of God that all his sins are forgiven him only for the sake of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. The Lord asks, in other words, for sincere faith. Christ has a place for us at his table. He obtained that place by shedding his blood. So now he wants us to celebrate with him. Your sins are forgiven. And even your remaining weakness is covered by my suffering and death. And how comforting that is for us to receive that by faith. For we know so much weakness does remain in us. That form for the Lord's Supper gives quite a list of our shortcomings. And it goes on to summarize. We don't have perfect faith and we don't serve God with such zeal as he requires daily. We have to contend with the weaknesses of our faith and with the evil desires of our flesh. But even all of that remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. We are covered by the blood of Christ, the blood and suffering of our Savior. That's what God sees. For those who repent from their sin and trust they are forgiven, there is most definitely a place for you at the Lord's table. And in the third place, the question comes up, what's the real condition of your thankfulness? You may cling in faith to the promises of God, but that faith also has to bear fruit for the glory of God. Otherwise, it's dead. The Catechism says we must also desire more and more to strengthen our faith and amend our life. Christ, at his table, refreshes and he strengthens our souls in order to amend our lives. So here's the beauty. The more and more you become bound to Christ, grow in Christ by faith, the more that faith has and will bring forth fruit. There should be a desire to do more for the Lord, not to pay him back. That's not the idea. That's impossible. But to praise and honor him, to find your strength in him. There has to be development in your new life in Christ. And at his table... By his spiritual presence, he gives you the strength to change and amend your life. That's why you are to come to the Lord's Supper. For without Christ, 
it is impossible to amend your life. But with him, you can do everything. Christ lives in you. Brothers and sisters, Christ invites us to the table because we cannot live without him. Repentant sinners are to come to the Lord's table. They know their sinful situation. They trust God's promises and they desire the new life. When you and I prepare for celebrating the Lord's Supper, God doesn't ask us, what wrong have you done? Christ has paid for our wrong. The question rather is, what is your attitude over against all the wrong that you have done? It is the heart that Christ is focusing on. It's after giving that long list of sins, the form says, while they persist in their sins, they shall not take of this food, which Christ has ordained only for his believers. Otherwise, their judgment and condemnation will be the heavier. Judgment for the believer comes upon us not if we sin, but it's if we persist in our sin. That makes you an unworthy partaker. Paul spoke about this in 1 Corinthians 11. Some were eating and drinking at the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. They were there all for themselves. They gobbled down the food as soon as they saw it. They became drunk, and so they became guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. They ate and drank without recognizing the body of the Lord, bringing judgment upon themselves. They showed that they didn't have a hot clue what the Lord's Supper was all about. The Catechism echoes God's word by saying that such people, hypocrites and those who don't repent, eat and drink judgment upon themselves. They are uninvited not to come. Beloved, we have to recognize our Savior, particularly his focus, what he looks for. He wants communion with those who know themselves to be wretched sinners, yet trust they are forgiven and want to serve the Lord and their neighbor by being a hand and a foot to one another. The Lord's Supper is not for super-Christians, for those who never ever doubt their salvation. If that were the case, then no one would be invited. Christ calls those, calls repentant sinners who seek their lives outside of themselves. Repentant sinners are worthy partakers. This brings us to our final point where we see the Lord's holiness in the restriction. The last question and answer of our Lord's Day is not about what partakers of the Lord's Supper must do, but what the Christian church is obligated to do. Are those to also to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who by their confession in life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly? It's not, it's not so much a personal question as it is a churchy kind of question. 
And it's not concerned with what the church must do about hypocrites because the church can't really do much about those people in the sense that we can't see the hearts of God's people. The question is concerned, rather, with those who behave openly as unbelieving and ungodly. Is the table open for everyone, including those who openly desecrate and profane the Lord's covenant? Catechism notices that unbelief can be expressed in two different ways, in confession and in life. The discipline of the church, then, is concerned with the purity of doctrine and also with purity in the conduct of life. It's sad, well-nigh awful, that within the congregation you do find unbelieving and ungodly people, that you have people who use their own desires as standard and not God's law, and who live in hatred and envy before the Lord and their neighbor. These are often the same people who once made profession of their faith, made a vow before the Lord, and now this. The Catechism then answers with a very strong no. For then the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. That happened, we read in 1 Corinthians 11. There Paul writes in verse 30 that because many were eating and drinking improperly, many among them are weak and sick and a number of them have fallen asleep. Have died. The text does not specify that only those who ate and drank sinfully became sick or died. All we know is that the sacrament was profaned by some, and therefore some in the congregation suffered. That's why discipline is essential in the church. That's why Christ restricts the Lord's table. It's a holy table. There is absolutely no room for you at the Lord's table as long as you do not repent of your sins. And then the Catechism goes on to join the church of all ages with the church at the time of Christ and his apostles. That's how significant our celebrating the Lord's Supper is. According to the command of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. We stand in line with the apostolic church and are commanded to use the keys of the kingdom when it comes to the Lord's Supper. Wasn't Judas sent away by the Lord Jesus at the first celebration? What you are about to do Do quickly. Judas took the bread and went out. The church has to guard the table of the Lord, keep it holy, dishonoring God's wrath, uh, God's covenant, and kindling his wrath against the whole congregation is the result of negligent work of the office bearers and their discipline and the congregation in its mutual discipline. 
At the Lord's Supper, we enjoy a meal of reconciliation with the Lord. How then could we possibly allow among the children of God a stranger, an enemy even, one who fails to repent? The Lord's Supper is the sign and the seal of the covenant. And when that supper is desecrated, well then so also is the covenant. That's why when discipline is not exercised, God's wrath is executed not only against the sinner, but is ignited against the entire congregation. What happened when Achan took some of the devoted things from Jericho? There was defilement, unholiness throughout the land. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, Joshua 7 verse 1 says. And all of Israel suffered defeat at the hands of Ai until Achan and his family were stoned. This was required because of the Lord's holiness. Beloved, this is serious. For the responsibility rests upon the whole congregation. It's not just a matter for the consistory, for the elders. I am my brother's keeper. After all, those who fall into sin are our fellow members. Well, to what length would you go to protect your eye when danger comes so that you don't lose it? Doesn't the same apply to the body of Christ? Exclusion is not the end goal. Brothers, sisters, discipline, as we'll see more next week, the Lord willing, is not to destroy, but it's to save. It's so that we can exclaim, this, my son was lost, but now is found. How joyful we may be when that happens, when we see amendment. The catechism doesn't say until they promise to amend their lives. Rather, until they amend, until they show amendment of their lives. Until, it's a little word with a big meaning. It holds the meaning of patient love, of long-suffering, which is how the Lord works with each and every one of us. The Lord, <clears throat> the Lord says to all of us, not least to those who have been barred from the table, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. So congregation, come not to an altar, but to the table of your Lord. Recognize whom you, whom you sit down with at the table. He's your glorious and holy Savior. He's your merciful Savior who gave himself for your sins that you may enjoy fellowship with him. He's your trustworthy Savior, your dependable Lord. Because of his faithfulness, you may come and sit down with him. And then look forward to the marriage feast of the Lamb, where we will drink the wine new in the kingdom of God.
there we will all be dressed in splendor, surrounding, yes, our Savior again. His redeeming work is done, and he has opened up paradise that we would sing Alleluia and bow the knee to him. Amen.